Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore some of the strange folklore and traditions surrounding the summer solstice and midsummer, the longest day of the year, which in the Northern Hemisphere takes place between June the 20th and the 22nd. And traditionally, it is seen as a very supernatural time of the year, which is why I'm talking about it. And you'll be glad to know that Welsh folklore tells us that it's a time for peculiar rituals, when apparitions can be summoned up in strange ceremonies, when giant bonfires are lit across the land, when some strange pagan activities that are sound like scenes from the Wicker Man. And best of all, it is a time when fox men and women may be encountered. Yes, we've got fox men and fox women on this episode. A bit like werewolves, I guess, but foxier, for want of a better word. So that's all coming up. That's a lot to cram into one episode. We've got ghosts, we've got fires, we've got wicker man type stuff. We've even got these werewolf foxy men and women. And so, to begin at the beginning which in this case is about 4,000 years ago, so way back through the mists of time, to a period more than 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, when we are told that, to quote, the Druids of Britain taught the belief that the sun, moon, and stars had mysterious and mighty influences. And evidence of this influence can still be found in Britain today. We are told because, to quote again, when Druidism merged into Christianity, it left many survivals in the form of May and Midsummer fire festivals and other periodic celebrations. So much like many of the other celebrations that take place in in the Western world, in the Christian world, as it were, like certain elements of Christmas and Easter can, according to Welsh folklore at least, be traced back to the ancient Druids of Britain. And Ireland as well, I'm assuming, although Ireland isn't specifically mentioned in this text. But the ancient Druids in Britain and Ireland did seem to love their great big bonfires, their fire festivals, which were an important part, if not the central part, of these Midsummer festivals. And here in Wales, Midsummer's Eve is known as Canol Hav, C-A-N-O-L-H-A-F, which in the Welsh language quite literally means mid and summer. Canol is mid or centre and Hav is summer. And I could make a joke here about the Welsh weather and it never being summertime in June, but I'll save my jokes about the weather until later. Back to the folklore, and we are told that fire was quite a prominent part of the celebration, as it was with many other celebrations throughout the year, which can be traced back to pre-Christian times and were absorbed into later traditions and continue to this 
day. So, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, they were a central feature of Beltane and the spring equinox later in the year, Christmas and the winter solstice, and perhaps second only to Midsummer, we are told. So, Midsummer is the big, big fire festival, and in second place in the, the top 10 of fire festivals is Norse Kalan Gaiav, better known throughout the world as All Hallows' Eve or Halloween. So this episode covers my two favourite times of the year. We've got Midsummer's Eve, we've got Halloween, and as I'm sure you've gathered by now, there is nothing that the ancient Britons liked more than an excuse to light a big, huge, roaring fire, the biggest of which took place in June. Now, as well as fire, trees played an important part in these celebrations, and not just for the obvious reasons, not just for burning, but trees and the oak in particular played an important role in the festivities and in what can be seen as a fertility ritual. It is where, under the branches of the oak on the summer solstice, youths and maidens would gather to dance underneath. And more than that, the oak was prophetic, we are told. And if anyone fancied doing a little divination to try and predict the future, we are told that, to quote again, the curling of its leaves foretokened heat. And it could also heal sickness. And we are told that a piece of oak rubbed on the left hand in silence on Midsummer Day will heal all open sores. So the oak was very handy for predicting the temperature. You could check the leaves to see what was coming up and for clearing up those sores, those ailments that just wouldn't go at any other time of year. And it wasn't only the oak that was sacred to the Druids of Britain at the time. And another particularly sacred element, we are told, that, as with the winter festivals, was the mistletoe, which you might think of as more of a Christmas time tradition. Nowadays, let's go off and kiss under the mistletoe. But in druidical days, the cutting of it was attended by great ceremony during the summer solstice. And the reason for this is that the mistletoe represented balance. It represented the two halves of the year. And we are told that the blossoms of the mistletoe generally appear just before the summer solstice, and the berries within a few days of the winter solstice. Thus, they indicated the return of two of the usual seasons for holding bardic conventions. So it's the yin and the yang in the mistletoe, we are told. It's the blossom that heralded the arrival of summer, and then in the winter, when the sacred rites were finished, the berries were gathered and preserved for medicinal purposes. So, all in all, the mistletoe is very important. It signals the start of summer. It signals the start of winter. can also be used for medicinal purposes. So, mistletoe is not just for Christmas. Now, I've mentioned how these midsummer or summer solstice or canal half fires are believed to have originated with the ancient Druids and were absorbed into later Christian festivals. And one Christian festival, or two, I guess, two Christian festivals in particular, were St. John's Eve and St. John's Day, during which some incredibly pagan 
activities, which again, I am assuming have their roots in fertility rights, would take place. And frankly, I mentioned The Wicker Man at the start. This does sound more like a scene from The Wicker Man, to me at least anyway, than anything pious that might have been concocted with which to praise a saint. But before we get to the activities themselves, first of all, you would have to build a special big St. John's fire. And to build this fire, you would need three or nine different kinds of wood and the charred faggots carefully preserved from the previous midsummer, all of which would then be assembled into a fire on rising ground, so a hill or a mountain or something similar. And into this fire, various herbs were thrown and girls with bunches of three or nine different kinds of flowers I'm assuming the number here would have corresponded with the three or nine kinds of wood. But these girls with these different kinds of flowers would take the offered hands of boys who wore flowers in their buttonholes and hats and jump together over the midsummer fire. Wild merrymakings these were, make that what you will, wild merrymakings these were, and the young people threw the flowers from their posies, hats, hair and buttonholes into the heart of the flame. And this connection with the flowers is then continued at home, where roses and wreaths of various flowers were hung over the doors and windows on St. John's Eve and Day. So there's a lot of flowers involved, just as there's a lot of fire involved. There's also a little bit of jumping through the fire whilst holding hands with a boy or a girl. And if you're wondering why all this seemingly fire fertility stuff is going on on a Christian saint day, well, folklore tells us that people said that if man and beast leaped over St. John's fire, they would be free from fever and all illness for a year. So it wasn't just all fun and games. There were sound medical reasons why you should take the hand of your loved one and jump through the fire with them at this time of year. Now, for a first-hand account of a midsummer fire, we can turn to an old inhabitant, a good old old inhabitant. It's been a while since I've used one of those as a witness on the podcast, but an old inhabitant, if you don't know, is basically an unnamed source, but due to the fact that they are old, they must be wise about these crazy old traditions, because as we all know, old people know a lot more than young people, or certainly that's what they believed a hundred years or so ago when this folklore was recorded. And this particular old inhabitant was born in 1808. Nine, so probably more than 100 years ago, actually, when this was told. But she was born in 1809, and she was about 14 when these events took place. So using my power of maths, that would have been roughly the year 1823. And she remembered being taken to different hills in the Vale of Glamorgan to see festivities in which people from all parts of the district participated and being old enough to retain a vivid recollection of the circumstances, this is what she described. People conveyed trusses of straw to the top of the hill, where men and youths waited for the contributions. 
women and girls were stationed at the bottom of the hill. Then, a large cartwheel was thickly swathed with straw, and not an inch of wood was left in sight. A pole was inserted through the centre of the wheel, so that long ends extended about a yard on each side. So, I'm going to interrupt Old Inhabitant quickly here, just to make sure that's clear. But you find a hill. The women and the girls are at the bottom of the hill. The men and the boys are at the top of the hill. And at the top, they've got a giant cartwheel, which they cover completely with straw. And then they stick a pole through it. Now, to return to Old Inhabitant, if any straw remained... It was made up into torches at the top of tall sticks. So the kind of torch you might see people chasing Frankenstein's monster through the streets with with, with a pitchfork. And, and maybe I've been watching too many horror films to think of that. But anyway, any straw left over, they make these torches at the top of tall sticks. And at a given signal, the wheel was lighted. All of that straw was set on fire and sent rolling downhill. So rolling downhill towards the women. If this fire wheel went out before it reached the bottom of the hill, a very poor harvest was promised, so you did not want that. But if it kept lighted all the way down and continued blazing for a long time, the harvest would be exceptionally abundant. Loud cheers and shouts accompanied the progress of the wheel. So, besides being quite a dangerous sounding tradition, rolling a big flaming wheel towards the, the women, the men were safe, I guess, but the women could be in trouble. But besides sounding dangerous, it was also another form of divination, of predicting the future, and specifically the future of the harvest of the crops they were growing. And I mentioned the Wicker Man earlier, maybe this would have been a, a safer, a more humane way for the people of Summer Isle to go about predicting the future of their apples before they went looking for a Scottish policeman. And if you haven't seen the Wicker Man, apologies, you won't know what I'm talking about. But frankly, if you haven't seen the Wicker Man, put it right at the top of your list of films to watch. Anyway, talking about divination, and it wouldn't be a party in Wales without plenty of divination. Midsummer was a great time for it, much like Halloween, which I've spoken about a lot on the Halloween episodes. But Midsummer, like Halloween, Canal Harve, like Norse Kalangaev, was a time Welsh folklore tells us that young people, usually young women and those looking for love, could attempt to predict their future, and more specifically, usually, their future love life, their future husband-to-be. And they could do this on Midsummer, but if it backfired, it could get quite gruesome, even more terrifying than Halloween. And, to quote, courtesy of yet another good old old inhabitant, if a girl wanted to see her future husband on Midsummer Eve, she laid supper on the table for nine persons. She invited seven guests, each one of whom sat at table. Each had to sit with eyes fixed on the plate, and not a word must be spoken, or the spell would fail in its purpose. The house doors were left open as widely as possible. So, so far, quite easy. You get invited round, you sit there, you shut up, you look at your plate, leave the doors wide open. And at midnight, 
an apparition would come and sit in the vacant seat next to the prospective wife. Or, and there's a big or here, or a funeral procession would be heard passing through the house and the corpse would sit next to the girl who was to die before the end of the year. The seven friends remained seated and the girl who invited them always occupied the eighth chair. The ninth seat was left vacant for the apparition. In ten cases out of twelve, we are told by the informant, by the old inhabitant, terror prevented the visitors remaining to see the apparition or the corpse. So, there's a lot going on there, but to recap that quickly, if you perform this act of divination, you might see your future husband, or you might see a corpse warning you of your imminent death. That, that's, quite, that's quite a big risk, isn't it, really, and takes the surprise out of life. Is it worth the risk? Well, apparently, it sounds like most people, uh, 10 out of 12 people, did not think it was worthwhile and gave up before the end. Now, talking about unexpected visitors on Midsummer, well, I did also mention at the start that we have fox men and fox women, foxy werewolves, on this episode. And to quote again, about a century ago, there were several dens of foxes well known to people on the seaboard of the Vale of Glamorgan. We're back in the Vale of Glamorgan, a popular place for a midsummer. Because these could never be caught, these foxes could never be caught, killed or trapped. The country folk attributed to them superhuman attributes. It was generally asserted that these animals were very old. And twice a year, at midsummer and midwinter, they were able to change themselves into human shape and prowl about the lonely villages and hamlets. So these foxes, these old foxes, we are told, they were so cunning, they were so clever, people just couldn't believe they were they were plain old animals. They must have some some superhuman abilities. And as such, they deduced that these foxes would transform into humans twice a year and walk about the place amongst them. So if this was the case, how could they tell these people were fox people and not foxes? Or how could they tell they were foxes and not people, I guess? Well, to go back to our informant, and we are told that whenever a vagrant with sandy hair appeared, the housewife promptly gave him something good to eat and sent him away with a blessing. Then we are told that old fox, in inverted commas, old fox would not harm the children. The fox men and women were said to be quiet and playful if pleased and fed, but dangerous when angry and famished. So back in the day, it was a good time or, or a bad time, depending on how you look at it, to have sandy hair because people or certainly the housewives knew that you were a werefox, for, for want of a better word. You were a werefox and they gave you lots of good food because that way, if you had good food to eat, you wouldn't eat their children, which is, is an approach that has never been used in a werewolf film and seems much easier than, than silver bullets, doesn't it, really? Just just give them something nice to eat and you can calm these were creatures down. Everyone is happy. You're happy. Children haven't been eaten. 
they're happy, they get great food, although I guess they do have to spend half the year as foxes. Maybe maybe they get great food when they're foxes as well. I don't know. But as always with this old folklore, sometimes it's best not to overthink it. Now, going back to the Druids, all the way back to the Druids, the ancient Druids, and as well as fire to remind us each year of their ancient rites, there is, of course, something much more physical we can turn to these mysterious towering memorials to a time gone by and they are druidical stones scattered about the land and in particular for this episode we are going to look at the druidical stones in you guessed it the Vale of Glamorgan more specifically in Dufferin near St Nicholas where the old people the good old old people again in the beginning of the 19th century so some 200 years ago now they claimed that once a year on midsummer eve the stones in mice availing field whirled around three times and then made curtsies and if anyone went to them on halloween so if you go back later in the year and whispered a wish in good faith it would be obtained and that's all well and good you can see them dancing about and making curtsies in the summer they can grant your wish in october but on the downside there's always there's always a downside with welsh folklore on the downside the field in which these stones stand was unprofitable and people said that the land was under a curse which is quite a problem for a field really it's it's great having these funny dancing stones but it's not much use for anything else ever. Now, moving on to some other stones, to those in Tinkins Wood, some distance away but belonging to the same druidical series, we are told. These were said to be women turned into stone for dancing on a Sunday. And if there's one thing I've learned from Welsh folklore is that women just can't stop themselves from dancing on a Sunday. So let this be a lesson to you. Dance on a Sunday and you might find yourself transformed into stone. And then centuries later, people will talk about you on a podcast because you've now become part of the Druidic Midsummer tradition. And moving forward in time slightly, if we move forward to when the Christian celebrations begin and back to, to good old St. John, not, not the good old old people or the old inhabitants, but good old St. John. Although not St. John himself as such, this time his flower, the plant that bears his name, St. John's Wort. That lovely yellow plant that flowers around the time of midsummer. And if it was gathered at noon on midsummer, it was considered good for several complaints, as you might expect from a plant named after a saint. And the old saying went that if anyone dug the devil's bit at midnight on the eve of St. John, the roots were then good for driving the devil and witches away. So handy for your health and handy for keeping away the devil and witches unless of course you want to attract more devils and witches into your life in which case don't go digging up this plant at midnight and it was also a curious way of forecasting quite morbidly this welsh folklore does get a little gothic at times and this is heading back into gothic territory but to forecast the length of time people living in your house might live for and to do that you take as many saint John's words as there are people in the house. 
clean these free from dust and fly. I'm assuming that's the plant, not the people in your house, but you clean them free from dust and fly and hang them on the rafters of a room. Each wort was named after an individual. Those whose plants wither first will die first. So, another nice, cheerful Welsh tradition for you there. Gather it up and find out who's going to drop dead first. And to forecast marriage, a slightly nicer prediction here, to forecast marriage, spinsters used to make a wreath or garland of nine different kinds of flowers. And then, walking backward, they endeavoured to throw the garland on a tree. The number of times it falls to the ground indicates the years they will remain unmarried. Which sounds a lot like a modern-day wedding tradition, doesn't it? Throwing the flowers back over your shoulder. And if that wasn't enough St. John's law for you, in the days of old, again, back to the days of old, folklore also tells us that, to quote, if the cuckoo was heard singing after St. John's Day, dearth might be expected in the winter. And also, if you lop a tree on St. John's Day, it will wither. So, all in all, there's a lot to remember there, but don't go lopping trees. Best to avoid cuckoos afterwards. And that is all of the St. John's folklore for this episode. But finally, to wrap things up, there's one more curious midsummer story that I have mentioned once before on a previous episode, but to be honest, I've recorded so many now, I've lost track, so I can't direct you to that episode. So instead, I'm just going to repeat the story for you very quickly, because I think it contains a very important message, a very important warning before you go out and celebrate Midsummer yourselves. And it concerns a man who visited a well dedicated to St. David at Hain Vanu in Cardiganshire, alone one Midsummer's Eve. And while he was there, he heard a voice from the waters calling, Help! Help! And when he asked who was there, a hand stretched out from under the well, asking him to hold tight, which he attempted to do, but the hand was too slippery for him to hold on to. He couldn't get a grip on it. And as the mysterious fingers vanished once more, the voice cried out, I am bound for another 50 years. The implication being that every 50 years on Midsummer Eve, this lost soul or whatever the heck it might be, has one chance to escape and failed on this occasion because this man was totally unprepared for it. But if you happen to see a hand sticking out of a well on Midsummer Eve, be sure to hold on tight, and who knows what you might pull out. And if you are successful in pulling this lost soul out of the well, of course, please let me know, assuming, that is, you survive the ordeal. All of which brings me to the end of another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, please consider hitting the subscribe button. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can treat me to a coffee via my website, or you can just leave a nice quick review or give it a thumbs up or whatever the options are for doing nice things on whatever platform you are consuming this on. 
If you'd like more ghosts and folklore, you can follow me on social media. And as well as a podcast, I've also published a number of books on similar weird and wonderful subjects, which are available from all good bookshops, offline and on. And on that note, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian am Rando. I've been Mark Reese. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast, beaming to you from Wales to the world. And until next time, if you see a hand sticking out of a well, be sure to hold it on tight. And if you celebrate such things, have a happy midsummer, have a happy summer solstice, have a happy canal halve, canal halve happis, and be sure to jump over that fire. Until next time, no star.